There's a Tomb Raider reboot coming out. Too. Uh, we're not even going to get to that. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that one. <laughs> there was some Star Wars celebration or Comic Con like event that happened, and J.J. Abrams was up on the stage, and they actually had a replica or or something or or the actual prop of BB-8 roll onto stage, and everybody's yeah. like falling over themselves, right. wanting a fucking BB-8. <laughs> the computer say. better fucking say hello. We have this rollout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No matter what he might find annoying or whatever, he realizes that he's a human being and he's dealing with his own pain. And, of course, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, he's going to let him in, even though he has a deceased wife and whatnot, and he has no home. Okay, so after this huge revelation, what kind of an asshole brings this guy back to his Thanksgiving dinner and <laughs> basically shows him around and says, here's my big, beautiful white family. And then, oh, and guess what? See that piece of ass on the stairway? Honey, Come down here, and then just starts making out with her. And John Candy is forced to watch this happen. And we even see him clutch his hat like, oh, now I miss my wife, you sick son of a bitch. Why didn't you pull the machines? Why didn't you call them? You didn't see what was going on? Well, there's no way to determine that. Yes, man. there is. An infallible way. They won. What's well, a casino? People got to win sometimes. Hey, what do you think? I'm a fucking idiot? Probability on one four-wheel machine is a million and a half to one. On three machines in a row, it's in the billions. It cannot happen. Would not happen. You fucking Momo, what's the matter with you? Maybe it was the love of the planets. Maybe it was just my growing dislike for this one. But for as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going into space. Now that I've met you... Would you object to never seeing me again? The biggest regret of my life, I let my love go. That price on my head, was that dead or alive? Don't remember. See if he starts shooting. I don't ask you over for dinner and then suggest you give a lecture on the peoples of Mesoamerica, or whatever your pre-Columbian shit is. This is my job. This is how I pay the fucking rent. The same gentleman that told me that you tried to get your broker's license also told me that you were a straight arrow. He ran a security check on me. Well... Sail on a boat fit for a Bond villain, sometimes you need to play the part, right? First of all, dude, you don't have an ex. Secondly, this is a fucking show dog with fucking papers. You can't board it, it gets upset. Its hair falls out. Walter, fucking no. dog has fucking papers. Over the line! Huh? I'm sorry, Smokey, you were over the line, that's a problem. What happened? Did your, did your balls drop off? <laughs> Hey there, welcome into episode 40 of Film Tank. Wow. My name, I know, it's a Holy big number. Shit. Number 40. We're over the hill. I know, I think 50 will be, it? will be the, well, that that is the that, number, and it will be a good number for us of being like, holy shit, I made it to 50. Oh, okay. This is the point where our podcast has like a midlife crisis, and we decide to like talk about baking stuff. I hope it's not a midlife crisis, because that would mean we only have yeah, 40 like episodes left. Midlife crisis would, yeah. That are we only plan on doing 80? I don't know. I am Alex Diegman, and the other two uh, schleps you hear in the background are Nick Cheney and Toussaint Egan. Hello. Hi. Yes, hello, gentlemen. I just said you were here, so it's nice to know that you're here. We're here. Yes. Yep. On uh, this uh, episode, uh, which is, if uh, you didn't notice from me saying earlier, is number 40, <laughs> we are going to talk about uh, the Steve Martin John Candy film, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Don't forget John Hughes. 
Well, he's not actually in the movie. He I know. Was, but was the, the maker, but uh, well, that's an important job. Don't you it think? is usually. Uh, usually, that is an important thing. So to what be. are you trying to say, Alex? Somebody had to make the film, Alex. That's right, and I said that. So, <laughs> just so fuck know, with you, man. Sure, you are. That's what you say after you like feel <laughs> feel threatened, and you're like, "I'm just fucking with you, man." Uh. <laughs> uh, come on, now let's let's just all love each other. I know. Wouldn't that be easier? Yeah. Yeah, but I like doing things the hard way. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, just got a wink on that. I like it. Toussaint, you winking at Alex? <laughs> Fuck you. You winked. Okay. Uh, let's, let, yeah, let's keep our homophobic comments to a minimum here before we get to the actual review. I was going to say, there's plenty field. of that in this movie. <laughs> uh, before we get to that, though, uh, in our discussion of that film, uh, something that's been not bothering me necessarily, but, but it's been kind of come has kind of come up a few times on the show before... Especially in some Tucson. of the films. Oh, yeah, he's a problem. Wow. I want to send him packages at some point. Just kidding, Tucson. <sighs> Bye, guys. Yeah, just... We decided this would be a good forum for it. <laughs> um, you know, out in the open, because, you know... Just a public we, flogging. Yeah, we cool. want to include our listeners in every decision we make as a group, including the the firing and the hiring. <laughs> There's so going to be a speak. web poll this week. Yeah. Should Tucson not be on the podcast <laughs> anymore? Son of a yeah. bitch. And by the way, I apologize for not getting that plane, trains, and automobiles uh, poll up, but uh, I just assumed that plane was an automatic win because who doesn't like planes? I agree. Mm. Except for Harrison Ford. Ooh, he likes them. He, he likes them a little too they much. They don't like him. Yeah, just doesn't like nobody can them. tell him that. Like, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I don't know. He just likes uh, also golf courses and landing on them, and uh, well, not cra- crashing on them would be a better way. To For put it. is that what you say when uh, you <laughs> the golf thing? Yeah. So what cool. were you going to bring up, Alex? What was I? What was actually going? What, to, what bothers you? That kind of involves Harrison Ford. Lay down on the couch. We'll speak. Like your psychiatrist. Oh, you said okay. something about bothering you. Well, it, it, I think it bothers a lot of people, and that is uh, the direction of Hollywood and the direction of uh, companies that make films that basically the franchise and the kind of story behind what is happening in the franchise is enough to continuously make films that – there, there isn't necessarily a reason to make individual films for franchises other than to make money and to continue on to the next film, which is, is a quite disturbing trend for me that is not anything that's new necessarily, but I feel like it has gotten to the point where it is beyond anything of what I initially thought franchises would be. Uh, as it's gotten to the ridiculous point, I think of you didn't get the hat tip when Marvel announced a t- like twenty year <laughs> no, lineup. That, but it's not just that; like it's yeah. it's other franchises, and the the problem is it's almost all other franchises that they won't stop until they lose money, and it's yeah. it is it is scary that this could continue on with all of these franchises because at some point. Every summer film is just going to be a continuation of a franchise, and that it sounds horrible to me. Already is just I would say yes like ninety nine percent of it. Like if we're talking mainstream blockbusters, like while I don't think we're probably there yet, we're pretty much I would say on the cusp. As of this summer alone, I'm just going to really quickly cycle through. I would say the most notable film, not necessarily based on how well they perform, but the ones that were like the most released. anticipated and released, whatever. Sure. Starting May 1st, because that's usually when the summer 
Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's getting earlier and earlier, unfortunately. It is, but that's just that's when they start calling it that. You sure. Know, like a season of like football doesn't start when like you know a certain like seasonal weather season starts. Like it's that's right. just when they say the summer movie starts. Uh-huh. Uh, but like May first was the Avengers: Age of Ultron. Uh, two weeks later, we got Mad Max Fury Road, which is a continuation of a even if it's a revival, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. a continuation. Uh, May fifteenth, the same day, we had Pitch Perfect two. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next week we had maybe the only original big budget movie, which was uh, Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. uh, and um, so we know how that worked out. Yeah, right, exactly. And it bombed. Uh, did not do very well. But the same day, it also we had the Poltergeist remake. Mm-hmm. Um, the next week, uh, apparently, that was one of the few weeks where we, I guess, didn't have one because then came out uh, San Andreas and Aloha, but nobody went and saw those for the most part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and then we did, let's see, so starting with June, on June 5th, we did get like a Melissa McCarthy spy, you know, with Jason Statham, but on the same day, we also got Entourage, the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next week was Jurassic World. The next week, we did get Inside Out, so that was good, because, especially yeah. because Pixar has been some of the worst offenders of uh, lately. Recycling doing, old Doing sequels films. for the middle. Cars 2. Yeah. Planes. Planes 2. And automobiles and trains. <laughs> Um, so that was good on them because otherwise, if any other year, that would have been a sequel by Pixar. Right. Uh, next week with Ted 2. Week mm-hmm. after that, Terminator Genesis. Week after that, Magic Mike XXL. Week after that, Minions, mm-hmm. which all of these so yeah. far that I just mentioned were. Um, week after that, Ant-Man. Uh, week after that, Paper Town, which admittedly was not big, but that is an adaptation of a YA novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same week, of course, was also, and these weren't good either, but uh, Pan, which is a Mm -hmm. (laughs) reimagining. If that's what what it was. Nobody really knows because nobody saw it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And of course, the only other original movie that came out that weekend as well was Pixels, and we all know how wonderful that probably was. Right. Uh, Week after that, Mission Impossible 5. Week after that, Fantastic Four. A uh, week after that, The Man from Uncle, which was based on the old TV show. Mm-hmm. You're, you're really that? putting my movie-going palette into like stark focus right now, Nick. Well, I, I, I guess what I was... Yeah, st- I, mean, this, tra- I just got lost in uh, August, and that's kind of where it all kind of simmered yeah. off. But, but that pretty much almost every... That means that every week we just about had a remake, sequel... Uh, reappropriation or re- revival. But I, I, I guess the the issue I, I take with it is that I I don't really care if there's like a, a really good purpose for it. Like the first Avengers film, like I felt like there was a purpose for that that we wanted to see the Marvel characters that they had created. And I know that the ultimate goal was to get to the film where they were all in a film together. It was the capstone. Yeah, I felt like there was a purpose for getting to that that first film. But all of the you know movies that we have now would just seem like they're just to get to the next film. Even the split of the third film, which isn't it isn't like the Hunger Games where they're splitting the third book into two films, which has pretty much become the norm for every third book. Yeah, and it works in reverse too, because like I just mentioned the movie Minions. Like I assume that when they made Despicable Me, they did not draw the and I say draw as in like write 
the character, whatever you want to call it, outline for the characters of the minions with the uh, spinoff in mind, that mm-hmm. down the road, that whatever. But it, apparently it doesn't matter if you have absolutely no characterization for your characters because they'll go the other way and not so much that they will only set up for a sequel, but they will also take from the barest of the, like, uh, what am I going to say, foundation to also create, like, we have a sequel problem that I would say is half of what you're describing and half the exact opposite as well, where we'll pick and choose from things that there is no foundation to support a sequel or uh, another project, so to speak. Other than people like Minions and let's have a full-length film with Minions. Like, can we make Happy Meal toys out of this? Then yes, we can make another 90-minute feature as well. Can we make Happy Meal toys out of Memento? Well, that's another... Yeah, that's another thing that we'll get to in, in a few minutes, but... Uh, the, what sparked this thought process really with me today was was finding out that indeed X Men Apocalypse and the the final uh, Hugh Jackman Wolverine film, which will be coming out, who knows when? I, I don't I don't know yet. But originally we'd heard from Brian Singer that this was going to be the end for him and for this uh, incarnation of the franchise. Yes, that there if they were going to be. <laughs> If there was going to be an X-Men film... Which there probably always were going to be. Right. It was going to be with different people playing the characters, perhaps some different characters. Uh, And and now we find out today that that isn't necessarily the case, that Brian Singer is coming back. Right. Now... I will say that we don't yet know what. No, I'm not. I'm mm-hmm. completely with you in the sense that I, I think it's stupid. And <laughs> but like we, no other details were reported about the plot of it. So it could very well be the fact that like Brian Singer is probably not in demand at all anymore, and maybe he stepped up out of laziness or just money that he would direct the next direction of the X. Like it could very well be a new universe for the X Men, but it's still. Uh, so we're, we're having this new universe for X-Men kick off a year and a half after the last film in the at, for previous series. I always expected that was going to happen. Uh, Not always wanted, but always expected, yeah. Oh, of course. It, it, it makes the, me the, just the, exhausted. Just... The very nature of them saying that this universe was ending only signaled to me that that meant that they were thinking about but the new universe. All, yeah, all that, I mean, I, I all always that assumed that I was going to get a reboot. Is we're getting an amazing Spider-Man happening, but in a much closer proximity than Spider-Man 3. Instead of it being four years later, it's a year and a half later. I <sighs> Please mean, don't say that name to me again. Okay, I, don't want to, but, I don't want to talk about Spider-Man. I know like it, it's part of the conversation, but just thinking about how even that franchise got rebooted and like started another continue so close in proximity to the same Raimi one and now we're going to get another fucking Spider-Man like how many Spider-Man can we go through before we're done I I think that is the issue for me at least is that that we can't like yeah and and that for me is how I feel about it like look at how how quickly that amazing Spider-Man business went south yeah like that went in the trash can really quickly if most people didn't like the first one and everybody unanimously despised the second amazing Spider-Man film we, let, let's look at Batman. I mean, Batman is coming back, going to be, what is it, four years after the last Batman release? Mm. Yep. Yeah. It, that's right. Yeah. Dark Knight yep. Rises in 2012. And yeah. then Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice will be 2016. Batman v. Superman. Whatever. I don't give a shit. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it just can't. Like, v I, for what? Victory. Uh-huh. I feel like people can't. Like I, I just feel like they, they 
even though we'll go see it, I don't feel like they will just get behind these constant reboots. Cause well, like, they I, don't have to because what's going to happen is that we, you know we say we don't want sequels. Not that mm-hmm. we don't want sequels, but we don't want this trend to right. continue, so to speak. But yet, uh, 2015, that is the year we're currently in, right? We'll end up going down as probably more... F- proof positive that studios should keep doing it because unfortunately Star Wars has yet to come out and when the numbers completely crash the box office there that's only even if that's should only be indicative of Star Wars's performance or whatever mm-hmm. it's only going to apply like you're there's going to be more memos going from others from studios to studios saying if Star Wars can do it then we need to we need to go through with Tron 3 or we need like you know just it's things the, that have no only Things that have no relation uh, well, and, to and, this will be drawn as correlation as to why yeah. other revivals should come. The very that. concern, the, the the I would say the most concerning part to me is that films that were absolutely awful, which I don't know about Fantastic Four, but from everybody I heard, that was terrible. And I know the Terminator Genesis was really bad. <laughs> and those are going to get next films, it sounds like, because they did so well overseas. And what? what? The other thing with those kind of films is that I feel like most actors probably won't sign up for these kind of projects unless they know that there is a future to. I know they can never like guarantee something like that, but I feel like that's the other thing is the willingness of like, oh yeah, like I, you know, like these actors, like like Amelia Clark or something in Terminator Genesis or Jason Clark or the other Clark mm-hmm. that's probably in there, but um, <laughs> like I feel like it's actors like that who did not make their way into the Marvel universe or something are wanting to like stake the ground. I feel like there's almost like this weird like underground cult of people meeting it's- with hoods on their head but, and all agree that if we all agree to do this movie there's no way they're not going to give us money to do at least another one but or it's the closest that actors third. have to tenure yeah I mean that's yeah but look at somebody like I'll just use it as an example like Shailene Woodley who I feel like her her career has almost gone down ever since she got stuck with that Divergent series yeah. I think j- it's a mixture of things because I, I'm just saying like while I agree with that probably had the effect on it she also compared to most other actresses has a different i would say philosophy on work and and whatnot uh only because she is the person who was in quite a few critically acclaimed movies so Mm -hmm. i feel like while the divergent movie like it's not like uh while the divergent movie did not help her career I, i feel like she has enough good willpower that they did not like if she was auditioning for roles that she's clearly suited for she easily would have gotten i, yeah. I could i could have easily seen her as a elizabeth olsen's character in like uh in age of ultron or so. i mean i don't you yeah. know what i mean like those are the roles that i feel like but i i, I guess the, the the biggest concern for me is not that, that this is happening it's that how how far is it going to go and and, and well, honestly, we're already seeing how far because we 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 know what's going to happen past 2015. We know that it doesn't matter how well this Star Wars movie does. We're going to have we already have on the books uh, not only continuation of this uh, new saga. We also have on the books spinoffs of this new saga that hasn't even. I mean, what, you what, can't even imagine something like that happening on TV. A spinoff of a show that hasn't even aired yet. Like if. That's where Hollywood is going so far up its own ass. It's becoming unrecognizable as like an artistic medium. It's insane. What prompted my consideration of this whole like franchise like nonsense was this like Wired article that I think recently went up. I'm not sure if it was today or yesterday. Yeah. But it's called uh, "Star Wars and the Quest for the Forever" franchise by Adam Rogers. 
Like if you guys haven't read it yet, you should. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But basically, the the gist that I that I got from the article was that the people that are behind the new Star Wars franchise that are like sitting down, they're trying to like plan out their their decade spanning, decade plus spanning idea of what they want to do for a Star Wars franchise. Like, if they're successful, then the in 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 the words of this actual article, that like, anyone who was alive to see the original Star Wars film will not live to see the final Star Wars film. That's and a, that's kind of terrifying yeah. the way it was worded. Like, I mean, are they going to murder me? It's a sobering thought. I mean, yeah. that, that's almost saying that they want the Star Wars franchise to become the James Bond franchise. When when Disney acquired like that. when Disney Except acquired more... Marvel film and Lucasfilm in order to like start doing the Avengers and the Star Wars things, everybody was like falling over themselves like thinking, "Oh man, these movies are going to be great." And I'm in the corner and be like, "You guys don't think it's kind of weird that this one company kind of has a monopoly over these other two companies and they're going to keep on making these films forever?" Right, not just a monopoly on these two companies, but a, a monopoly on two, I would say, uh Entities that are like from this point on going to be doubled down on their own like connective tissue, so to well, speak. And, yeah, and I, I, I guess for me, I, I feel like we're we're partly living with, with this sort of, sort of the answer to this question is going to be. And um, I, I actually want to reference going back to one of not Nick's necessarily like favorite movies of all time, but a film we we talked about recently. Uh, and that's the social network. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love a scene in there uh, when they're talking about branding of Facebook and uh, they, the discussion of uh, the, the original guy who uh, who uh, created Victoria's Secret. And he, he sold it for a certain amount. And he thought, holy shit, like I'm making all this money on selling Victoria's Secret. And, and this is like a great thing because I would never make more than this and whatever. And then lo and behold, years later, it's worth you know, a hundred times what he sold it for. And he's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I feel like when it came down that George Lucas sold star Wars to Disney for $4 billion, people like could not comprehend like $4 billion. Holy fuck. What are you doing? Like, that's why you paid for it. Hey man, they're gonna they are going that to by, make that like, back by 2016. Probably. I mean, when you really think about yeah. it, a, I mean, I saw, this is the first year of my entire lifespan, and I'm not saying I'm old, but mm-hmm. let's say if I'm 24 years, okay, this is the first year in which I have ever seen, uh, and now maybe social media makes it a little more noticeable, but it's, mm-hmm. there's no way it was ever as big as this in my lifespan. Yeah. But this is the first year that I have ever seen a national uh, presence of uh, merchandise of of like day one merchandise being released. Star that Wars when, has when, always been the progenitor of that, though. Right, and I know I get that. So that's why it's all I'm saying is the the tweets and whatnot of what I saw of like, and I'm not saying it in a, in a judgy way or like mm-hmm. that, but I'm just saying the volume of tweets that I saw of cropped up of people I didn't even realize, you know, we into it. Right, right, totally. Like Star Wars. That's what I mean by Star Wars is going to only be, I would say proof positive as to why they should continue to do stuff like this, even if it is the exception to, to the, the rule, rule as to it, it, it has its own legacy, so you can't compare it to... But when I saw how many people were going out on day one to buy like all the, the, the newest uh, figurines and such for the new... for properties they haven't even seen yet, because I mean, that's the other thing. And, and let's talk about this. We don't really know how much involved 
Oscar Isaac is going to be in this Star Wars. Today, thing. Star Wars Battlefront came out, and that's a huge thing. In, right. Was yeah. it today, I think? Um, or was it today or yesterday? It's coming out. It's, it's, I saw it's it in the, yeah. but in the store when I was at, I thought. What I was going to mention is we don't we don't even know how involved he's going to be. We assume he'll be a major character in these three films, but really at this point we don't really know. Who right? are we talking about? Sorry. Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Isaac's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Poe yeah. Dameron. Yeah. yeah. There was a Poe Dameron action figure when I was at Walgreens. Walgreens has a Poe, right. like who should be like the sixth or seventh oh, yeah. biggest character from this film. Yeah, no, I mean shit, man. Yeah, I mean the whole like, it, not only that, but Star Wars the the merchandising whatever realm is also reactionary to the cultural conversation around Star Wars mm-hmm. in the immediate uh, uh, future because. The minute the first trailer got released, and there, you cannot tell me that there were as many BB-8 toys no. uh, invented before everybody reacted to the trailer and everybody kept doing memes of the BB-8 droid. You know what I mean? Like The reason why like I, I went into a Best Buy today and I saw – uh, as I was walking to just to go see the movies or something, uh, I could not literally get away from t- at Best Buy like toys of the BB-8, uh, and you cannot. So like that's also a scary thought that they are not only just coming out with like figurines or whatever, but they are also keeping such a close uh, finger on the pulse of the conversation that they are. What? What are you? Yeah, um, you like I, this shit, I, don't you? I, <laughs> that's I, what I mean. Like, I, the, I will say that I feel like that. Um, I feel like they had probably had a pretty good idea that they were going to get people to be interested. Because you think if that you... that split second clip of the BB-8 droid like rolling around was like going to okay, but going I, to if, launch. If you, the... if you want to say just from that first trailer, yes, I will agree. From that like small clip trailer that came out months and months ago, like in February or whatever. Mm. But in the other two major trailers that have been released. Like, if you want to compare that to how many times R2-D2 or C-3PO has been in it, it, it has been way more. Like, we've seen that droid oh, pretty oh, much right. almost saying, every that, shot. That, yeah. And you don't think that that was intentional as well? Like because like because I do think it was intentional, yes. Right. Inter- inter- well, sure. I never said it wasn't intentional. I, okay. I don't get What I was saying is, like, the extent of which Star Wars is trying like a franchise like star wars is trying to basically support itself through mm-hmm. financial gain is bleeding over into things like the merchandising and the the marketing because like what i mean is that it's not like these things are always being changed even as we speak too because it is all for maximum profit so right. i think they included more scenes of the bb8 in the newest trailers because of the sure. reaction I right. also, absolutely agree. it also right. bears mention that after the premiere of the first Star Wars trailer. I think it was either at a Star Wars celebration or it was. Are we at... talking about the first full length trailer? No, I'm not talking. I'm talking about like there's been awakening. Can okay. you feel it? That gotcha. one. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm talking. I'm talking about after that was released, and there was some Star Wars celebration or Comic Con like event that happened, and J.J. Abrams was up on the stage, and they actually had a replica or or something or or the actual prop of BB-8 roll onto stage and it was part of like their whole like capstone of saying it's like yep we use actual practical special effects to actually have this thing function like that and everybody's yeah. like falling over themselves right. wanting a fucking BB-8 exactly but that's that's what I was trying to say earlier I guess to clarify what I was the trying to say the computer better fucking say hello when you have this rollout <laughs> yeah <laughs> what what I was trying to say earlier is that like the, the the whole BB-8 thing, okay, let's just call it a thing, whatever, yeah. uh, is like a microcosm of this I 
in my opinion, troubling trend in even like movie marketing or like movie planning, which is the minute an audience says I want something and that they will, you know, whatever, then studios basically like Disney have deemed that, oh, you want that? Then we'll give that to you. And I feel like so if we clamor for a Star Wars sequel, we will then be bombarded. Like we are also complicit in this. Nick. What? I want that dancing baby Groot statue. Well, I yeah, no, want that's, it. Yes, and exactly. That's how we got it. That's how we got it. And that's and that was a thing that was all over. Like it was like, like you know, and, and that was a Marvel not post credit scene, but that was like a like whatever. And that's how popular that thing became. And yet, mm-hmm. so that's what I mean. Like they did not. That's actually a great example because that shows you that they were not prepared for. I would say the how fast that how fast and how much that that took off or how the, well that movie would be received that's the other thing too that they have more faith obviously in star wars than they do in like guardians of the galaxy uh, but uh, but what i'm trying to say is like the extent to which they will change their marketing campaign their their merchandising to simply get people uh i would say uh clamoring for something they still haven't even fucking seen it, it is also I, – I would say it's just as much our fault as a society uh, for – I'm not pointing to like you two or myself or no. whatever. But because we are lining up day one for these merchandise, because we are breaking Fandango just to buy tickets to Star Wars or whatever, like why why wouldn't they at this point? I mean we are telling them that they, are, they will make a billion dollars if they just announce that it will happen, and that's right. all they're doing. So I yeah, I feel like it's the fine line. Like if we really didn't want this, and I personally don't because I'm not a Star Wars fan, but guess what? I'm also a hypocrite because I'm going to go see Star Wars the, the, the day it comes out with you guys, and I'm actually excited and looking forward to it, even if I don't love really like Star Wars. Uh, right. So it's kind of like I'm just as much a hypocrite, and I have to realize that these decisions, even if I'm one person and one ticket, like everybody's making these same decisions that I am. We have fully become a reflection of the Futurama meme. Shut up and give me and yeah, shut up and take my money. Yeah, exactly. And that's it's it's and one that, of those things where as much as I want to, how unthinking and stupid we are with the shit, but well, yeah. we still do it. And we that's into the, it. that's the thing is what I guess what all I was trying to say is that as much as I'm with you, like I completely agree that this is a horrible trend, and that you know these studios are really really starting to piss me off that doesn't mean i'm not seeing any of these movies well, opening weekend and, and yet and, how can i expect them to then somehow change their behavior but, if even i am not willing to but, like but i think that's I, I guess that's where my issue comes with is that for for the ones that have been done well and and i think that's that's the other the other problem is too is that yeah if you are going to take the time to do a franchise well and you are going to Give the effort to bring the right people in. If you're not going to cheap out on effects for certain things, if you're not going to push something out this year just because it fits into your studio schedule, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily dislike the idea of franchises. It's just this this just necessity to continuously push out movie after movie and it, it is honestly oh i don't think it's a necessity so much for these films for, for these students yes it is i think no, they would like because, to make money but that's the thing is it's not a necessity in the sense that like if they it, it it's a desire like why wouldn't they want to make money you know what i mean right. like if they needed to do it it would be a different story they don't need to do it that's that's where i think like they're literally they don't but but need for, to for, make... for them they feel it's a necessity and that's why there's this constant need to push out I don't the think new it's, Fantastic yeah. Four, just because we want to, because 
Was there anybody? Was literally? Was there anybody clamoring for another Fantastic Four film? No, no, not even people who were like my friend <clears throat> is an avowed fan of the original Fantastic Four comics, and it just hurt his heart to see the first two, and he did not want to go see another one. He didn't go see the new one. Right, um, he's right there with a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> what were they gonna say? Like. I- when you say it's a necessity, that almost makes it sound like that, that if they don't do it, they're fucked. They're not – really, they're just not willing to somehow split the difference. Like it's not a necessity because they're just greedy motherfuckers. I but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. If, if, if the people who are the higher-ups who are trying to make money for their studio and, and the only way they feel like they can make the kind of money to compete with other studios is to constantly push out these franchises that they happen to own – and at this point, I don't even see it as like a competition. I I just think like like I have a a, a, a mental image of what board meetings must look like at at uh, at film studios, which is basically a lot of white old men sitting around a table counting money and listening to Icona Pops "I Don't Care I Love It" song. Like it's just like that's that is the <laughs> mindset of 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 the studio. It's not so much that they feel like this is a like that they have to do this or they will go bankrupt, but like at this point. They're, this is the best solution for not solution, but this is the best direction for them because now they don't even have to like acquire new talent or so to speak. Now they like they not only can they streamline their process, but they also somehow make more money doing it. Like that that's but that's it. And, and th- this exact yeah. problem has been going on. This is not something new necessarily. Oh, no, I mean, I mean look, look at it just keeps getting exacerbated. And, right, and it worse. just keeps going on and on. Yeah. And but why not like make the effort to make these films good? Like that's. I guess that's the like like when you wanted to get and that's what I get into about the need like Disney felt the need that they need to get these Pirates of the Caribbean the second and third films out. There's in, a new in, one coming out. I I know, but when the second and the third films came out, they felt the need to have them come out exactly when they said they were going to, and that's why they forced <sighs> the writers to pretty much be in a, an unwinnable situation where they had to write the films as they were being shot. I mean. How can you possibly do that? I mean, they're making it's an improv. Alice. They're making an Alice in Wonderland two sequel. Like, I've not met a single person that has ever once expressed interest in seeing a second live adaptation. You know, continuation of Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Like, the, even when that's Sam what I mean. Like, here. that's not a necessary sequel. That's just they know that if they do it, they will make way more money than well, they should. What I'm saying about it being a necessity for for the studios is yeah. that. For them to make this much money, their feelings are, is we have this much in resources that we're willing to allocate to this, and we need to get to this point or else we are considering this year a failure. So they're saying, if we put out this, 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 and this, we will get to this number. And it, that's why I'm saying it's a need. Like they're, they're not thinking of these as films. They're thinking about them as cash machines. Oh, they're, yeah, but that, that, that's also that's their job. I mean, the only person who thinks about these as films are the director, even if they're like a higher Sometimes hand. they don't even do – they don't even do Oh, that. no, no. I'm just saying like that's – that, that means that they don't do their job Sometimes well. But I'm saying the only person who – their coffee. I'm just saying the only person who is hired to think of these as movies are the people who are literally like making the movies. The, the, the reason – but that's, that's the danger of putting these types of decisions in the people's uh, hands that – uh, yeah, have no emotional investment in such a thing whatsoever. I mean, that's, right. so it, it's it's a fine line. I just, yeah, I think basically everybody's complicit in this awful, awful mess and ridiculous trend, and uh, I don't see it stopping anytime soon. And not only that, but I, I, I can't imagine it won't get worse than it 
you know, before yeah. it gets better. I do think there will be some kind of glass ceiling we're going to hit, and I don't know what film, I, it might not even happen for a few years or something, but I don't know what film I will do it first or something, but I feel like at one point, uh, something is going to, like, drop out from under the floor. Flubber 4. <laughs> so what? Flubber 4. Flubber the, th- the third sequel to Flubber. Oh, Flubber 4. Oh, okay. I gotcha. You know, there was a sequel to Flubber. Oh, fuck. Yeah, so it would be Flubber 3 if there was another one. Um, but I, I do think there is going to be some kind of... because Only because I think... I've, at least I personally like... Hollywood's, I would say, trend seem to be like uh, reactionary in nature. So it's kind of like... This is a big and very elongated reaction to our most recent fetish for sequels or whatever, but something else is going to catch on, whether it's going to be a desire for streaming or something like that that takes precedent over, like, the actual content and rather the medium. Um, because, like, you know, like, we're never going to see, like, a, a I would say, while we, like, a, for example, Netflix, okay, like, mm-hmm. they're trying to break into the, uh, like, cinema game, like, making their own movies and then premiering them uh, exclusively, but not exclusively, because, uh, mm. uh, like, Beast of No Nation just came out, uh, and that was released simultaneously in theaters and on Netflix day, day one type mm-hmm. release, and that was a Netflix original movie. So I feel like something like that is going to somehow accidentally wiggle its way, and and if if somebody like I feel like this thing is going to go come tr- tr- crumbling down because of some outsider that kind of accidentally topples the whole thing over. Because if a let's just say for example, if a company like Netflix accidentally makes a dent in profits one day, I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but mm-hmm. say three years from now, people really are sick of going to the theater for whatever reason, and Netflix notices that all 10 Adam Sandler movies that they commissioned uh, <laughs> were uh, ridiculously uh, you know, engaged with by its viewers, that's going to be the kind of thing that will start to see, I would say, a, a sh- title shift because Netflix still won't be able to, I would say, to get the rights to like uh, Marvel's Adventures or something. So they'll have to continue to make original content and that might be the only way, like, you know, it's, it's sad, but like, yeah, the only way to get the other companies to like compete with them might be to have another entity that's just as big as something like Netflix come and basically force them to compete with their own original content. Because then what is popular is original content. Then, yeah, so something saying, like yeah. that. Like where it's not going to be the studios themselves saying, oh, you know what? It's going to be somebody else coming in with original content that somehow competes with these big studios. So, and I th- oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say if we can get off of this really quickly. Um, sure. But it, it relates to this and it relates to studios not being able to help themselves. It was another tidbit of news this week, and it's a a subject that we've talked about here and we've talked about on previous episodes, so we we won't hit on it too much. But for this specific instance, I I want to bring up, and I know you guys have strong opinions on it as well, Mm -hmm. and that is the news that there is going to be a Memento remake. Um, Cricket noise. Yeah. In in what realm is this good for anybody? It, it, first of all, there's no need for the remake because the, the the original is an absolute fucking amazing film that a lot of people would call a masterpiece, and they would be right to say that. Uh, it's not that old. It, it yeah. special effects. <laughs> I mean, that's what I don't understand. Special effects will really do nothing to enhance what this this new film would be. All this is is just pure honest greed of. But even. Think, 
that like it would but a studio <laughs> thinks that they can make this film for 30 million dollars and they will profit uh, they will make double that on the film but here's the thing like there's a nostalgia for star wars and i know that's a bad example because that's like the juggernaut of film franchises but it's just like there's a nostalgia for Mad Max even because that had its own sequels or whatever. Yeah. But in in what way is anybody who's a fan of Memento wanting a remake of Memento? And in what way is anybody who's not a fan of Memento or who's never heard of Memento going to connect with this new story that was also such a personal story? Not personal in like an autobiographical sense, but Memento, the film, is directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, who also wrote the script, which was based on his brother's short story. Memento like, Mori. Yes, this was such a insular uh, idea and concept that... To, you know, you you can remake George Lucas's Star Wars if you want, or not remake, but like you know, uh, continue it with other directors because I feel like that was a much more collaborative effort. Like he didn't even direct all three, obviously movies. He just I don't directed, think he directed any of the yeah, first three. That's what I was gonna say, mm-hmm. um, you know, and yet he's the one we cite as the author, so to speak, of Star Wars. You know, like that's a property that can. Uh, extend itself to other creators and whatnot. But uh, something like Memento was one person's idea uh, that <laughs> I don't understand in what universe somebody else is either even if they, I would say, tap into something like um, that was close to it, then then you're just dangerously getting close to just remaking it just to remake it. Like right. so, I mean, the, for for me, I don't. I whenever this comes out, I I will go on record of saying. It's going to be a complete disaster that will not be successful and will disdain what the original film is. And, and for the most part, it will just be annoying when it comes out. And I think people will think, God, this is what 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 happened here. But in, in the grand scheme of things, people will just forget about it. I feel but like... I, I, if I can sorry. really quickly yeah. just end what I was going to say. Uh, I feel like th- this, to me, reminds me of when Gus Van Zandt did his shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. Yeah. And it... it yeah. I know it's a different kind of thing, but there's... I feel like people felt like there was really no purpose in remaking that, and they were right. Yes and no. I do think there is a subtle difference because that was Gus Van Sant wanting – this is a studio saying we want someone to step up and write a Memento remake pretty please, and we will pay them money to do it. You know what I mean? Whereas the Gus Van Sant remake was like almost like – that weird class in film school that was an elective that was being taught by that weird professor that you heard was good or whatever because it really was just this passion project. I'm not saying there's ever a point to it, but I guess there is something to be said about like like he set out to do something that he explicitly said that you know he. I, set I out guess to do. I'm I'm taking everything out of who made it, where it came from, what the thought process was. This from a pure film consumer perspective. Looking at the original of the original Psycho and looking at the Psycho remake, I, I, I guess that's where I'm going with my comparison of just saying I'm going to sit in the theater and watch this and think, wow, what was the point? Well, I guess that's uh, that's where I can't meet you halfway because then I think like I can't take that out of it because if I go to see Psycho the remake, I'm going to see it under the context of knowing what I'm getting into and knowing that Fan Sant wanted to like – 
see what the difference was if you simply made the scenes color and if you shot them with these different actors or whatever. Like, I wouldn't expect more of it because I would know that it already started as this informal uh, film experiment, so to speak. Whereas this is a complete, this is your, like, let's remake a Paul Verhoeven film because we didn't understand it the first time, (laughs) you know, like, um, like, that's just a like a more of a money grab type thing. I don't think Van Sant when he set out to make Psycho, he was thinking that people were going to go see it because they love Psycho. I think he was more appealing to. I mean, like even Steven Soderbergh, uh, like uh, on his own film website, uh, made his own cut of Psycho the original and the remake spliced together. Now the difference is we live in an internet age now, so he was able to do that kind of the same thing that basically Van Sant did, but there was no way to actually release these kind of things except in the cinema. So that's like what's like if Van Sant did that today, I almost guarantee he would have did something like what Soderbergh did and released it online or like had like underground screenings at film festival as like this is just my cut of this remake because i don't but because it was back then i you know it's not a viable option we live in an age now where that is a viable option so if we're if we still have studios commissioning this kind of shit then it's wrong i feel like the seed of the idea behind this whole memento remake and I know this is going to sound kind of cynical. Well, it, it, it is cynical. Yeah, so because it's, 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 it is cynical. it's just trying to capitalize and and reiterate on the gimmick. And I hate calling it a gimmick because in the film itself, it's it's perfect where you you have the film playing backwards and forwards because that's supposed to mir- mirror Leonard Shelby's inability to create new memories. Right. And you're basically put into his position where you have to try to recollect and see ahead of time right. what he's already about to experience or what he's already experienced. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing that could not have worked for any other film because it's singular to the condition of this one protagonist. And I, right. for one, when I came out of that film, that was like one of the first – Christopher Nolan films that I had ever seen, and for a long time it was my favorite film, just simply because I thought it was a, an excellently told story about the futility of revenge and of vengeance, but also for the simple fact that I was able to be so, and the first time I was able to be so enamored with a film where I thought that every single character in it was unrepentant was just so they're there's they're irredeemable. I I feel like especially even with the protagonists themselves. And I just don't know what a Yeah, I, but it doesn't fit in the current culture requirement. I don't give a shit about a scene with Leonard Shelby looking at his smartphone. Okay? I don't give a shit about the idea of like a serialized like television show, what kind of shenanigans is Leonard Shelby getting into now? So is he gonna instead of doing tattoos, is he just gonna like make like little Apple reminders uh on his smartphone or yeah. take take selfies instead of Polaroids? I mean yeah. that that movie literally is stuck in time, not outdated but is completely dependent on w- what the universe looked like at that point in time. Sure. And, you know, like, now we don't have things. I mean, just think about the fucking opening scene when it goes from Shaking the black, away. white to color. I mean, how do you remake something like that unless you're, yeah, if you do something like Gus Van Sant, but a studio is not interested in something like that, which is like a formal experiment in my eyes and not just... Well, a- and let's look at another thing of that's just a pure remake that really has no purpose, which is the the Point Break remake that's coming out. Now, granted, uh, the original Point Break does not have the um, 
significance that Memento does. At the same time, though, what is really the point there of making the new Point Break film other than trying to make money off of it? Right, it's just to make money off of it and then also to try – you know when that movie comes out, there will be like a – 20th anniversary or whatever sure. it is of yeah. the original like it's supposed to half the time these remakes but you know for a fact that when Memento comes out they're not going to be selling or even if they do they're not going to make that much money the same way they would have something like Point Break where they can tie it back to the original movie because that's the kind of movie that like people would I think like oh yeah we've never seen the original but like I don't <laughs> I don't know who's going to have that same like desire who had seen Memento already to be like oh we really got to see but the I- first one Christopher I, I, Nolan himself made a great remake. In your in your opinion, Nick, when he did, uh, oh, of uh, Insomnia, Insomnia, Insomnia yes. yeah, but it's just like that was actually a that was a purposeful remake, yeah. right? But if we if we look just on the surface at at the Point Break remake, and I'm not trying to get obsessed with it, but I'm just thinking because it's relevant because it's it's something that's coming, coming out, out in in pretty short order. Uh, I love the first Point Break. It's in my top fifty all time favorite films, and I feel like. If you watch the trailer and what this new film is going to be, it's not a classical remake because the story is seems to be quite different of what the the villains are doing. That their their whole point is this sort of anonymous type thing where they're just causing chaos and anarchy, and and that's the whole point of this. Where really that was not the point of the original film, which is just that. Patrick Swayze wanted to make money and yeah there was some of that whole like being free and and that kind of thing but making money was really the whole point of it maybe that will be part of this this new film too that's the other thing but here's that's where I want to relate it back to Memento really quickly is that I feel like the spirit of what the actual original and real film is is already lost and it's going to be just totally just fucking just steamrolled into let's just make this and well, put the name Memento on it and people will I mean look at like when Old Boy got remade by Spike Lee and that was just a colossal failure yeah and so that's something that I think is like different than like just not to bring it back up but like Gus Van Sant's Psycho like mm-hmm. I think that's the clear at least to me that's how I differentiate between when I think a director is just making a remake because he thinks that like he you know there's a need for it or like that he's going to bring something to it than something like what Van Sam did with Psycho, which I'm not even defending as like a movie. I'm not. If <laughs> listeners are listening to me, this is not like an endorsement of Van Sam's <laughs> Psycho, only of the mindset of that he. I would assume based on what I've read and what he. Did uh, when he made it. Um, actually, I really want to tie back into what you were just saying about Point Break, and also tie back into the conversation we were just having prior with one statement, which is I actually think that and you guys can disagree, but I think our fetish for remakes right now, like at least in the the, the current iteration of our fetish for remakes, goes back to Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. I think that that was the first time that I would say studios, not the first time, that's a weird statement to make, but I just mean that's what set up our fetish for, well, you know, we just made Batman five years ago or however long it had been since the, you know, the the Batman and Robin, Mr. Freeze shit came out. And (laughs) if all we have to do is make it grittier, because of course we're seeing that already with like uh, the DC stuff or whatever. But I think that's, I haven't seen either Point Break yet, but is Point Break a new grittier remake of the original Point Break? That appears to be. Right. And I think that's our new fetish right now. Not simply just remakes, but like people want the entertainment that they now think of as cheese and they want to 
feel like it, that now it has like some kind of gritty purpose. I feel like that was that was that was what the new Godzilla film exactly. felt like to me. Well, like let's take away the camp and let's like make sure people realize that this like or not realize, but let's give them that real situation that they want, but which the, is also feels different than the Memento thing because that that already was. Gr- here's gritty. the difference, at least for me, and we we can we can have. Or I, I know Nick, you you are not a fan of it, and I definitely would not put it in the same ballpark as the first two. But the difference being that Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are just terrific films, in my opinion, where a lot of these films, the same effort and thought process is not oh, no. put into them. That's what I'm trying to say, though, is that it's always one good like advancement creates like ten different setbacks. You know what I mean? Like I, I agree that they're that actually, even if I don't love them that much, but then mm-hmm. Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. But that's the thing. It, usually it's never a bad... Uh, it's always like... Uh, it always starts with a good intention egg, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I, it's... Even though that they are good, it, what it really means is that like, the studios were like... They don't care whether their new properties are good because they just... Once again, they look at numbers and they think, okay, so if this did this, uh, if Batman Begins and The Dark Knight... Look how they basically probably made more and more money with each. Uh, I just think that this whole... like I feel like one thing that I... I don't know, but the whole weird gritty reboot like i feel like we're not getting remakes we are getting gritty reboots of everything right now sure and i feel like that's what's almost like causing these remakes not so much that people think that we need to see the same story twice but that we didn't take it seriously enough the first time what about uh, if we're just talking about memento right what what about memento what can you make that's going to make it grittier than the original (laughs) that's why i think it's very and i think i kind of think memento is such an weird exception to the current rule right now. I imagine like a gritty reboot of Memento looking similar to Crash and I don't think that's a good idea. The Cronenberg movie or the I'm talking uh, I'm talking the... about the Jason Statham Crash film. What? Who he wasn't in like he, he, like Crash like Brendan Fraser? No, 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 no. I'm thinking of like Crank? Crank. Crank. Yeah, oh, I was shit. Say Crank. Oh, oh, yeah, Crank. sorry. Okay, so you're thinking that Memento is going to be like... Have you crank. seen the Crank movies? Yeah, yeah I've seen the Crank movies. <laughs> okay. How, how to they're... make them more gritty. And just like so gritty just that it's ridiculous. Like the, like the over, uh, over the top. I mean, over the Crank top, are I mean, quite yeah. campy. Like, Yeah, they are campy. Like there's a scene in the so first Crank serious that it becomes where Jason parody. Statham has, has sex, sex with, with Amy Smart in yeah. the middle of a horse race course, I believe. No, it's like in the middle of like a public like square i thought like no i, I think it's do they maybe, do it maybe, twice he does it twice yeah maybe, maybe it's in because i've actually seen crank 2 high voltage so i, I haven't know. seen the second one. Oh, you missed out it wasn't good Neither was the <laughs> i first heard one. some people praise both those movies but specifically the second one as like really good trash uh, i was gonna say they they are for me at least my kind of paul verhoeven films yeah. that i like watching even though they're bad yeah. um sorry about that confusion That's okay. no 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 uh, it wouldn't be totally the show if we wouldn't have a confusing <laughs> comment made by tucson oh, no fuck I, you. I know what i just said about i know what i just said about the gritty reboot uh itis or whatever and but that's that's another point to say of why i think this memento news is so off its own axis of like they're not to say that any other remake is necessary, but like this specifically does not feel uh, 
in step with all the other remakes that are coming out, so to speak. Like that's why we are getting like, like even like Mad Max, which was a uh, obviously I didn't like it, but uh, a lot of people did, and that yeah. was a good revival, so to speak. It wasn't a remake, but you know, it's it in a all... way it's a remake because yeah. it's casted a new person in the lead, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, that's what a remake does. Um, and yet, doesn't it? I haven't seen all the Mad Max, but isn't in a way wasn't it sort of grittier than the other? Not so much in the atmosphere, but obviously in the way they were able to shoot the action. I mean, it was it grittier than the originals? Uh, Is that what you're asking? That's what I was asking. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, not, I mean, I get that they all have the same basic premise, so I'm not thinking that this was like uh, that far of a stretch or anything like that, but. I, I guess I felt like I haven't seen them, but the, the other three looked a little more campy at times. I think that the campiness of the initial, even the first film, it was more of not a deliberate decision. A but, product of its age. But a, not only a product of its age, but also a product of its budget because okay. they filmed in Australia and they had to like tr- yeah, that's true try to well. make yeah. up a, a rural, like post-apocalyptic world with very yeah. few like resources to do that. I think that... Fury Road is not any more nonsensical or any more serious than the originals. I mean, it's just like it has better effects. Like with with the whole part yeah, with the was... baby getting cut out of the, the the mother's chest. It's like I had a baby brother, yeah, and it was perfect true. in every way. That's 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 that typical is, that is of, of a Mad Max. Film. I guess I was trying to point to other, but like like okay, okay, here maybe this is a bad example too, and I'll just be on a winning streak here. But uh, <laughs> the Avengers: Age of Ultron wasn't that sort of more gritty than the first Avengers? I mean, oh, it tried to be. Oh, that's what I mean. It tried to be, but it's I mean, different it, tone. And that's what I mean, though. Like, so even our own sequels to property that we are still in the middle of developing are shifting towards this uh, new gritty aesthetic uh, and uh, t- tone for their scripts. And uh, I think that's also I think that's what's I would say inspiring the decision to be uh, for for all these remakes, so to speak. Okay. And that's what's kind of disturbing because I don't understand how that caught on other than I feel like it does trace back to Nolan's Batman. Like, I, like I think that opened up the floodgates, so to speak, mm. why that was the catalyst. I, I'll never know other than the fact that they were obviously good, decent movies, but, uh, but that's just another example of the studios looking at one thing and somehow calling it a correlation and then therefore justifying all future decisions based on one thing that really was just a thing that existed. Okay. Uh, we we all don't like it, and it's not going to be good. And I'm going to go on record that I, I maybe it's just because I brought up the the old boy uh, remake, but it just seems like he's the perfect fit for that role in, in the way that the film is going to be made. But I'm going to put my money on it that that Josh Brolin will be playing Leonard Shelby in the Memento. Reboot. There's a Tomb Raider reboot coming out. Too. We're not even going to get that. <laughs> not even going to touch that one. Uh, that's gonna play, how much money are you going to put? Are we going to? If you guys are willing to give me two to one odds, because this is totally just throwing <laughs> a dart. Let's do it, bitch. This is totally me throwing a dart at the wall. Uh, I will bet five dollars on this. Okay. But if Josh Brolin gets cast in that role, you each owe me ten dollars. Yes, that'll be. Okay. I would totally do that. Will okay. Smith. Okay. What was that? Will Smith. I bet Will Smith is going to well, be cast. Wait, now you're just entering another bet. Yeah, this, this, the, is, this is not what we're this doing. This was like a bet against Alex. Okay. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying you can't bet, but... And I'm, I'm giving you guys really good odds. Right. I, I mean, I that's think, why I'm agreeing to that. Okay. Yeah. I don't I don't think Josh Brolin is a... Like, it's just one guy who I just think is a 
who the studios would pick for this role. So everybody listening yes. has confirmation that Alex is going on record and putting money down. And I will owe both of you five dollars if Josh <laughs> Brolin is not cast in that role. And you if will he make is though twenty. You will owe each I owe me ten. ten each. All right, okay. Let's do it. And but we have to lay a ground rule here though. Okay. If he is either A cast at it and then drops out or B is ultimately who is chosen. If he ends up officially signing on at some point, I win. Officially signing on, so like no bullshit news of like Josh Bowen and talks. No, if he if he signs up, he has and to have then, some involvement. Those are rumor mill people who probably yes. Okay, if he officially signs up and then drops out of the project, oh, yeah. I still win. Well, yeah, for sure. But, okay, yeah, cool. He doesn't right. have to be Leonard Shelby. He just has to be involved in the project. No, no, no. no. He's he got to be Leonard Shelby. Shelby. Oh, okay. <laughs> cool. No, no he's got to be that's, him. That's the bet I'm making, at least. So. All right, cool. That, that's the bet you should be making. That's yeah. what I said. Fine. Yeah. But he doesn't. If, if he doesn't have playing him, I, I could still win if he gets okay. cast as him and drops out. And listeners, Alex will also pay each and every one of you out $5 each uh, if that ends up not being true. It's easy money here, folks. Yeah. Easy, guys. Alex is shaking his head, so I guess I should probably clarify that that is far from the truth. And yeah. He does not owe you guys shit. So. Just around this this three right here is yeah. all I'm, I'm, I'm betting on. All so. right. Sounds good. Well, you heard it here. And we're, of course, we will update uh, I was gonna say, our it'll, listeners. It'll, it'll be something fun to follow it because be. I think it'll be like a little Game, like every it, piece of information that now comes out about the memento remit we're gonna like analyze and be like so josh brolin like do you think this oh, means that by josh the way brolin if for some it? reason this movie gets canceled the bet's off too what uh, you didn't agree nope. whoa 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 if the movie never gets made yeah. then i would never owe you yeah well that's we we didn't discuss the stipulation uh, i'm actually if, okay with that stipulation if well you, if of you've... course you are but i want to make some money here <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever like looked at an actual like sports book there is always a if if the event does not take place, nobody wins. <laughs> well, so I will not be. I thought you they meant like nobody wins me. metaphorically, like they're all sad. That, but <laughs> fuck off. But if the film never gets made, I can't be the loser okay. or the winner. All right, fine. I, I accept it. You just had to give me a mental moment to, to to let that sink in because I was just basically expecting to win <laughs> five bucks no matter what. But now I have to. I have to accept the terms that there might not be five dollars in my future. So. And there could be ten dollars in my future. Oh, uh, we'll see. I'm on the Josh Brolin team. We'll see. Uh. Moving on to the actual uh, <laughs> point of this episode, uh, finally here an hour in, and that's fine. I've, I thought that's been a very, uh, very fun, spirited discussion, fruitful conversation. I think. Absolutely. Uh, the 1987 John Hughes film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring the... Josh Brolin. Uh, <laughs> that would be something. <laughs> Just kidding uh, with James Brown. Oh. It wasn't him. Nope. Yep, yep. Good. Yep. Nope. Nope. Steve yep. Martin and John Candy. Thank you. Hey. Thank you for bringing that I in. I knew we had Tucson out of here for a reason. <laughs> I know. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get <laughs> Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. <laughs> Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the Paramount Pictures presents Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. 
You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show. That's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Uh, the plot of this uh, this film is a, a man struggling to travel home for Thanksgiving with an obnoxious slob of a shower curtain wow. rain salesman Even the as his companion. description is judgmental. <laughs> it's IMDb. Was it written it's by Steve Martin's character? <laughs> obnoxious <laughs> slob. It's a little biased. Uh, as I mentioned, the uh, the film stars Steve Martin and uh, John Candy and, and features... Kevin uh, Bacon. Yeah, features some other people in there, like Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon, yes, and uh, Dylan Baker showing up randomly. When did he show up? Uh, he's the guy who's driving the truck, who uh, picks them up. He's got he's he's got chewing tobacco. He's the one with the wife. Yes, like that. He that he that was yes. Dylan Baker. Yep. Wow, I did not. I like Dylan Baker, but I, I did not. Uh, Twenty eight years ago, put that together. Mm-hmm. I noticed a lot of John Hughes players, like. Yes. Uh, the uh, the car rental lady is uh, the principal Rooney's mm-hmm. assistant in Ferris Bueller's, and of course Ben, oh, yeah. ben Stein shows up at the airport. I think yes, yeah. is a uh, one of those attendants who is yeah. announcing that the flight is canceled for the evening. Yeah. So uh, th- this was my choice purely because uh, there aren't that many uh, Thanksgiving films out oh, there. there are quite a few. Well, this is the one that came to mind first for me. I, guess I watched put it that way. over the weekend. Well, good for you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I watched this a lot when I was younger, and uh, I thought this would be a good film for us to talk about, and um, I, I don't know who wants to start us off. Tucson, why don't you start? Yeah. yeah I'll start cool. us off. Okay. So I haven't seen this film in a, in a very long time, but I, I think I can distinctly remember the first time I ever saw it in that it's typical of almost all John Hughes films that I've seen in the past. Like I've, I remember being a kid and walking into the room and somebody else is watching it. Like my, maybe my grandfather or maybe my mother and just sitting down and watching with them. And that's really kind of the allure in my mind of a John, John Hughes film is it's a film that kind of like communally brings people together. Like if anything, like that's the, 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 the main momentum behind most of his most well-known films for the breakfast club for um like 16 candles yeah that was a john Hughes for film. um for for uh home alone yeah and especially for this one as well like i i i, I enjoy these films because was that a john hughes film home alone? home alone was yes did, he didn't direct it did he write the script is that what it was i was because i was just thinking i'm sorry i was just uh i was I don't think I think John Turtletop directed Home Alone. Or Chris Columbus. Chris Columbus. The that's R- what regardless, I was like John Hughes was the the writer. So he was and, the writer. Okay, I just yeah. wanted to make sure. And he, and he, okay. a lot of his John Hughes isms. Oh are, yeah, yeah, have for their sure. Yeah. I just, all over for some films. weird reason, I was just trying to think if he directed or not. But anyway, not. Any, you were right. Anyway, what I'm what I'm getting at here right. is that he is so indelible from the fabric of the 1980s and maybe even the early like 90s, like fabric of cinema that it's 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 almost like it's something that you breathe like you just like you go through life and there it, you don't seek out a john hughes film it often finds you you know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know what i'm talking about it's, it's just like and so it was so weird movie to... that are passed down to you basically yes, yes. exactly sure. yeah even if they were just like created within like right. a span of like maybe five years 
before you were born. Like oh, yeah, it just but, feels like it, it well, passes down and, to you. And kind of to what they're saying, they're like compulsively watchable. Like, yes, like absolutely. like if you see Goodfellas on AMC, like I find it hard to not watch at least like fifteen minutes or something like that. It doesn't matter. I've seen it thirty times. It's right. still fucking good. Yeah, or a, a lot of a film that uh, not necessarily you guys, but a lot of people feel like if they see it and it's on, they're going to watch it. It's the Shawshank Redemption, which is one of those films that just happens to be on. And they I'm just fifty fifty on that. Yeah, whether else, but, but it also helps but, that I feel like John Hughes has made like a film for every age, yeah, so to speak. I yeah. mean, like you literally you start with Home Alone, mm-hmm. and then by the time you work into like like high school, you that's when you get to like Sixteen Candles and Ferris Bueller's and mm-hmm. The Breakfast Club, and obviously somewhere in there, probably even before high school, you can pretty much get shown uh, the. Plane trains and automobiles. If you have which is like lenient a, enough parents, considering it's really not that bad, apart from a few swears, obviously in certain scenes where it becomes one, one, high volume. One like scene a, was a uh, yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but that that's also the other thing is like it it's that's a weird distinction. Now I'm actually starting to think about like films like. Like, I would say comedies in general, like, they used to be so, I would say, almost like quarantined. They're like, they're most, I would say, unfamily friendly stuff. Like, mm-hmm. and always, like, whenever I Rated watch. Rated X. What? It used Rated. to be quarantine. Well, no, I don't mean quarantine in, like, other movies. I mean, like, whenever I watched older movies that were probably above my age limits, it was very easy for my parents to let me watch it and then say, okay, this scene, close your eyes, or this scene, go get something to eat, whatever. Today, you cannot do that. Today, like, movies that are rated R are rated R from the start to the finish. Like, I've just started to think, and I feel like John Hughes was one of the people who subscribed to that trend where, like, he only used, I would say, like, extremely crass humor, so to speak, like the F word uh, galore in in the car rental scene. Like, that's quarantined to that very specific scene. So it even makes that kind of movie, which has a scene that you might not want to show younger audiences, in such a way that you can easily show it to younger audiences and yet still cut it out if that's something you're interested in. If we want to think about the the, the time of this film come out, which is, is 1987, which was a great year, by the way, the year I was born. Oh. Uh, if we have to think of that time of a film wanting to get played on cable or wanting to get replayed over and over, this kind of goes to what you were saying, Nick, of we just have to cut that one minute long scene out yeah. and not just cutting out multiple little things throughout every single scene. Right. Of the film. I mean, and I love this movie, but like, I don't ever want to watch the, uh, the big Lebowski on cable because that's a, like a chore. You're the funnest stranger in the Alps. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, to do something like, although I, I do give him credit for that movie because at least so it is kind of entertaining in its own way. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, the comedies of, of like the John Hughes era, you can, yes, easily put them on cable. And that's what makes them so compulsively watchable on cable. You're essentially watching it. Most of the jokes you remember are not the, and I'm not even la- uh, lamenting the state of like rated R movies these days. Cause I, I fucking love Judd Apatow's, universe so to speak like you know seth rogan and uh evan goldberg's annual movies whatever i'm fully on board for all i'm not saying they're masterpieces but those are totally up my alley with regards to humor or whatever mm. but there gone are the days that this kind of stuff was easier to sift through and to share with uh you know up-and-coming generations like yeah. i can't imagine like wanting to show like this is the end to a you know a future child that may or may not have and be like oh well no you actually have to wait until you're older i can't just like watch I don't. You. I don't know what part to stop the film at yeah. in order to like let you get to the good part because the good part is too crass for you. And mute. Yeah. And but unmute. And mute. We, and unmute. And that's, yeah. that's what it would sound like. Uh, you know, other than than this, which is is totally valid thing about thinking about this film, uh, Tucson. When you were you sitting down and watching it, 
obviously had some sort of nostalgic feelings for this film. Yeah. And, and did, how, how did that make you feel when you were watching it? But also, did it translate to this being the same film that you remembered seeing years ago? I think that... I mean, I mean, when I first saw it, I'm not even entirely sure if I was like cognizant of what it was I was watching. But all I knew is that on a on a visceral, like visual level, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a funny film. It was funny seeing these two guys like traveling across the country in order to like get home for Thanksgiving and all the wacky antics that they <laughs> they get up to. And I feel like I appreciate it a lot more being older, just having scenes like uh, John Candy like doing the mess around and I. <laughs> And that scene, I've got a very complicated history with that scene because of Seth MacFarlane. I just don't want to talk about it. I just want to talk about the scene itself. It's really funny. Um, and watching him like spiral, like spiral out in, into the middle of the street and just like go down the wrong lane and have to get into a fucking drag race with the people yeah. beside him trying to I tell him. I like that that's stuff. his first reaction. That, that must be what they're saying, is that they want to race. They must want to race, huh? It's I like, love that. They're like a station wagon. Yeah. I love that they are screaming, you're going the wrong way, and the first thought is, how the fuck do they know where we're going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And Steve Martin agrees with them. Well, yeah, yeah that actually, idiots. and all, everything about that scene makes sense, which is kind of an important thing to comedy because the minute we can't suspend our disbelief for yeah. what's happening, but the, the idea is that Steve Martin just woke up, so yeah. he's not really at full capacity, and of course he is the first one to figure it out, but yeah. it takes him a little longer than normal. But uh, like talking about nostalgia, I feel like it kind of works. For me, at least, it works in almost like two different directions where I'm able to have nostalgic feelings for what I thought the film was before and like watching it now, but also in a, in a kind of roundabout way, like how this film inspired something else that I'm very much nostalgic for, such as like when they're in the, the, the beat down, like destroyed car and they're just like puttering around and John Candy's like, well, the dashboard melted, but we still have the radio. And it's like, that's a lyric that was appropriated for a modest mouse song that was like one of my favorite albums when I was in high school. And that is a different type of nostalgic for me. So it's just like, Oh man, this is the great. John Hughes generation is all grown up. I know. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so any other just opening thoughts on, on uh, planes, trains and automobiles, man, mostly just because it's a, it's a classic. I think John Candy is, is terrific. Steve Martin, their chemistry together is awesome. I love seeing Steve Martin getting so flustered, especially when he has to like walk across the highway in order to like, like go back to the, the airport and like demand getting a new vehicle from the very nice lady who eventually told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> um, and I also love the music in this in this movie as sure. well. I know that's a that's a different like a divisive topic, but like I just love this really crappy like '90s era MIDI keyboard that sounded like it was composed by Keyboard Cat, and then the the really out of fucking nowhere like soundtrack of like uh, I mean it's your typical John Hughes of score. like record scratching. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's well, that, 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 that was fashionable no back then. That, that was a fashionable. Like I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> the, the... Yeah, so let's explain you got the this. wrong guy. Yeah, let me let's <laughs> explain the this. wrong guy. In case you have not seen planes, trains, and automobiles in years, you may or may not remember that there is a scene in which Steve Martin's character gets dropped off at the car rental lot to get his car that's not actually there, and he has to trek back to the airport because the bus left him behind. 
while he is making his trek back to the airport, John Hughes, or the music supervisor, maybe, maybe it wasn't John Hughes, uh, decided to put in a, a, a song, not a score, like it's not just the typical synth, mm-hmm. do do uh, uh, <laughs> decided to put in this song that uh, confusingly samples Steve Martin's vocals saying a line, you've got the wrong guy. Or you're, Which, I think it's your you you mess with the you wrong mess with guy. the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah, okay, that actually makes a little more sense because <laughs> you've got the wrong guy. I just, a, I just I wish it was yeah. you got the wrong yeah. guy. Then, then he's just in a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> but no, you mess with the wrong guy uh, over and over as Steve Martin himself, the character on the screen, is stuck in a montage of him like uh, over you know going over highways and overpasses. Uh, so it, it is this weird cognitive dissonance of like Steve Martin is speaking, but he's also not speaking. Like he's a ventriloquist dummy. I guess now it it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And it does nothing like it only confuses me and distracts me from Steve Martin being angry. Uh, Yeah. I don't get it either. I I don't, it was, it's, it was the most oddest. It was something I genuinely was. I don't remember everything before I watched the movie, but that was something I was not expecting. His anger became so profound that it became his, his non diegetic soundtrack. Yeah. I, I, um, <laughs> oh boy! I gotta take a minute. <laughs> yeah. uh, before you, you while well, you're taking your minute, if I can interject my please do. This film. I'm gonna wrap my head around that song for a while. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. You mess with the wrong. You mess guy. with the wrong guy. I like you got the wrong guy. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. It should have been. That. <laughs> it should have been. Well, that that might have made more sense. <laughs> so. Um, also, I, really quick, can you please put that song in our intro? I can, I can try to find it. I <laughs> yeah, can try to find it. Here yeah. we go. It'll, it'll, it'll make no sense. And I do it for the outro, great. too, and everything. Yeah, sounds good. All right. I'll, I'll make a try for it. Boom. So th- this film, <laughs> this film, I, it's, it's weird because I watched this a lot growing up. And I definitely think after watching it this time, if I saw this for the first time uh, two days ago when I watched it, I would probably not like it that much. Which I think is easy to say for a lot of older films that I have nostalgic feelings for. However, I do, and I, I watch this a lot growing up, especially around the holidays. So I have a lot of, of happy memories about this film, uh, and you know that's something that definitely plays into to you know watching a film and watching it with your family and your your brothers and whatever. So, um, but actually watching this film and uh, kind of going with the characters and uh, and following this film. Uh, it's the first time I had seen it in like some like eight years start to finish. And I, I still did very much enjoy a lot of this film. Uh, and I enjoyed it definitely for different reasons, because this is a film that for my, for my money has not aged well at, at all. Uh, whether it be the references, which are still great, but they obviously are very aged out. Uh, or some of the the ideals uh, of the the people, or some of the ideals, uh, some of the themes that are happening in the film are just like holy shit. That was like that was like I thought that was like a good idea. Oh, fuck, <laughs> that was hateful. Well, yeah, and it's just like shit. I don't even, and I'm not even necessarily talking about this. Just the homophobic scenes. Either. No, no, this film goes out of its way to somehow I would say like not be offensive. That's a word I'm I'm hesitant to use about most of everything that happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. But it goes out of its way to make everybody around uh, Delmer and uh, Del Griffith. And, Del, yeah. And, uh, see Martin's character's name yeah. uh, to make everybody like stand out in a very obnoxious way like the the trucker like Dylan Baker's character that like won't stop speaking 
spitting for one fucking second um, who gets his wife like like that scene is so bizarre not because it's not funny to me personally but because like I don't understand the thought process as to why they thought it was funny like, well and um, there, there, were, there were a couple things and uh, Steve Martin's character's name is Neil Page by right. the way right. Neil a... Page oh very good to meet you Neil Page <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the characters uh are Steve Martin's character specifically is a horrible person throughout this entire film. And I feel like if you were watching this years ago, you would just think, Oh, this guy is just annoyed with, with John Candy. And he's, you know, this is, this is normal how this behavior is. But if you, if you watch clearly how his wife is feeling and how his character is at John Candy, like, like it's almost like Ebenezer Scrooge evil. Oh yeah, of, of what and Neil I, Page's character is. And I think half of it was intentional. I, half of it, like sure. I, I think it tries to be the story of a man who learns to be humble and like obviously tolerant of others because that, that is essentially what the ending obviously mm-hmm. suggests. However, it also thinks that there is something redeemable about like. Neil Page as well, which is also kind of like weird to me because, like you say, like if you if you chart out the behavior of Neil Page and uh, and Del Griffith like in this movie, what's bizarre is that the movie wants you on Neil Page's side essentially all the way up until the final reveal of Del. I mean, you're you're making it almost sound like this film is like the gift almost from this year with Jason Bateman. It's I kind mean, of a I, fucked up thing to, to say, oh but but no, in, in, I, in that I, film, Jason I, Bateman is supposed to be the protagonist, and by the end of the film, you are, have well, very you, different opinions of his right, character. Right, he's supposed to be the hero of a story, so to speak, not heroes of like... And obviously, yes. the, the ending of the films right. are quite different. The good versus evil <laughs> switches, so to speak. Um, but I, I do think that, yeah, like if you chart out the behavior of both characters, like... It's almost like if yeah, maybe somebody will disagree with this, but like mm-hmm. Del Griffith almost does nothing wrong in the sense of like how to treat another human being, which is all that should necessarily matter. Like you can make a mistake and whatever, but like if you look at everything that uh, Neil Page does, uh, it, it's almost astounding how horrible of a person he is. Whether he's just a being a horrible person to uh, Del and just like basically thinking that he's superior to him in yeah. every way or even be like not even acknowledging the fact that they only get anywhere because of uh del griffith's character and he can't even like if he's if he's so oblivious that he can't even recognize that uh, of course until the very end when he does like thank him for mm-hmm. getting him you know sure so i just uh, yeah it's it's a very weird movie in that respect and uh actually something else that that i really hadn't even thought about and never thought about when i i previously watched i just thought that she was you know missing him and whenever um my wife emily though brought up a very interesting point that i would not have thought of even now watching uh, the film but so we're about halfway through and she asks she leans over to me and asks what what is his wife's deal like what is her deal because yeah, i have no idea <laughs> and, what... and and i i'll go with this because i'm just saying like she's angry that he hasn't been home and whatever but she's like laying in her bed or just sitting around moping, like looking like she's ultra depressed. Yeah, about it's a something. weird. The whole family cutaway thing is John Hughes's uh, sickly sentimentality, like trying to trickle into this movie, which is already going to provide that a plenty in the finale. So it doesn't need it uh, leading up to that. Right. Not only that, even before the finale, actually, there's some of the best movements of this movie is the. Like I would say, the ounces of movement uh, Neil Page makes towards a uh, a more human side, like when he gets off the train and he sees uh, 
uh, Del Griffith's character lugging the suitcase and like, you know, Neil Page two days ago would not have gone and helped him. Right, sure. But in that moment, even though he still hasn't redeemed himself totally, he, he makes the decision to go help him or he makes the decision to let him into the uh, motel room in the cold. You know, like we already get the John Hughes sentimentality from all those moments. So the idea that we already like we already know that he needs to get home for Thanksgiving, and those scenes not only add nothing to uh, the movie itself. They, I, I think your your wife Emily is onto something because they they play so bizarre every time they cut to it. Well, it it, it also gets to a very weird moment at the end of the film where yes. we have the the very <laughs> awkward ending of the film yes. of they're walking in and her having this like weird moment with Del Griffith, and it's like. So how did we end up here? Well, okay, what's weird about that moment for me is not with Del Griffith, but it's okay. So he finally, quote unquote, redeemed himself, so to speak, and mm-hmm. he he let this man into his life. Uh, uh, no matter what he might find annoying or whatever, he realizes that he's a human being and he's dealing with his own pain. And of course, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, he's going to let him in, even though he has a deceased wife and whatnot, and he has no home. Okay, so after this huge revelation, what kind of an asshole brings this? <laughs> guy back to his Thanksgiving dinner and <laughs> basically shows him around and says, here's my big, beautiful white family. And then, oh, and guess what? See that piece of ass on the stairway? Honey, come down here. And then just starts making out with her. And John Candy is forced to watch this happen. And we even see him clutch his hat like, oh, now I miss my wife, you sick son of a bitch. Like, th- that is the, and then like, yeah, that is the weirdest part is their kiss after she comes down. <laughs> sure, there. Because yeah. she's like – first of all, she, I, I feel like she's wearing like a virginal dress or something like oh, on, the, on, the, oh on the top of the stairs because she's like, oh, honey, I've been saving myself for you and Thanksgiving dinner, you and the turkey. Um, I'll get the baster. You, you know, bring the stuffing. I, like it's so <laughs> fucked up that he would like allow him to come into his home because he, in the spirit of Thanksgiving and then make him watch this freak show. Like there is – that was one of the most fucked – up but of the entire movie. I, I, I'm not, I didn't think about it that way, but I'm totally right there with you now. But what I'm saying about about her uh, and, yes, and, and, then, and Del having that weird moment of of her like, thank you, you brought my Nick. husband back to me. It's just like, huh? Like what? Like that's for me. Like it was so awkward that she like she goes away, and and that, that's that's the issue with this film. And that that may be an issue with other John Hughes films, and maybe I, I would never thought about this, but I don't watch films as much as I do now. But her as a character has not been spending this entire film with Del Griffith. So when she says, "Oh, I'm so happy for you," she literally knows nothing about him as a person. So when she's like, "Oh my God, I'm so happy to see you," when you brought like, my husband home, you fucking psycho. It's very very simple. I would say like like the barest of effort had to be put forward to make that work. And that's all they had to do. Like all they literally had to do was have them walk through the doorway, whatever. And then like Steve Martin, like have a scene of him approaching his own wife, not making her fucking walk down the right. stairs, like princess die or something. Crying. And, uh, yeah. And, um, and have him say, honey. And now he does save a line, which I actually think is a great line. Cause it encapsulates the whole point of, you know, the climax, which is honey, I'd like you to meet my friend, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, the big, you know, statement of the century. My friend. Yes. And, you know, um, but like there, there needs to be more of an actual conversation after that point and not just like a, well, hello, Delbert Griffith or whatever, yeah. you know, like, hello, like the idea that they Miss go through your candy. <laughs> 
Oh, man. But, yeah, the idea that they go from point A to that point B uh, with that fucked up kiss in between is like... Yeah, could, it, no matter which part we're talking about, we can all agree, I think, that the actual like very final scene of the film is very weird. Which is so sad to say, because like <laughs> all you had to do, really, like even if you did, like, did away with that, was have them you know lug in the truck up to the house and then have nice synthy music play and then like cut open to... the door well, no not door. even do that like they could have even faded into like everybody around the thanksgiving table we could we could literally could have easily skipped uh an introduction scene and just shown how like oh you know like you see uh Dell maybe accidentally spilling stuffing or something, and everybody's going, "Oh, don't worry about it." Like, like he's still the same person, but now we're all in a loving space, and we're all in acceptance. Right? I mean, like it's just like the idea that they make his whole. That's I think that's the 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 failure of the ending is that it took the story of uh, of Dell. Griffith and Neil Page becoming friends and Neil Page learning humanity. Uh, I feel like it's like Scott Pilgrim. Like he leveled up and learned the power of, you know, respect. And, um, it it took that story and it thought that it was ending that story when really it simply ended the story of did a man get home in time for Thanksgiving? But that was never should have been the emotional crux of the movie. That was always supposed to be the plot, like structure. So the the reason for him to be going there, right? So the reason for this road movie to be taking place. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, really quickly finishing my my thoughts Sorry. that we no, it's but hey, it's totally fine. <laughs> Tangents are what drives the show. Uh, I uh, I I still did enjoy it, even if there were a lot of points where I was like, no, that was awkward or that didn't fit. I mean, there were things that I even thought forgot about, like the the chase for a, a, to get a taxi between Steve Martin and Kevin Bacon. Uh, and, and the look that Kevin Bacon gives him with that little asshole smirk when they start, ru- yeah, and then, yeah, he- and, then, and then when he kind of salutes at him when he's going into the, into the cab, I, I love that. I love the way Steve Martin's running with his arms going up. That, and down. that was honestly the that was one of the gifts that kept on giving every time they had him <laughs> run with briefcases. It was just like it's so over the top, but it's so great. Yeah, and that's that, that's one of the things that I absolutely love about this film and. Um, you know, John Candy for me is the is the reason to watch this film. Like, yeah, Steve Martin brings good parts to it, and and he's the main character in this film. But John Candy, um, not only just being the comic relief, but at the same time also being uh, the emotional heart of the story is really uh, what always keeps <laughs> until me that back. final scene. But it's like, fuck you, Dell. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, I mean, yeah. if, if you really look at it from a total film from start to finish. Uh, he's he's really yeah. what drives the film, even if he wasn't supposed to be. So, For sure. um, yeah, I'm I'm I am still a fan, and I'll go back and watch it uh, over again, even if some of the scenes uh, aren't necessarily uh, as fond as I remember them. I'm gonna go back and try to dub in my mind your dialogue for that last scene because that is too perfect. Well, yeah, and, I, it's and scary. Th- I know I know there are other parts of this film that Nick uh, thought were thought were a little. A little off, uh, a little and, bit. And has things that he doesn't really love, and yeah. Well, let's get into that and into your feelings on the okay. film too. Um, yeah, I know. I just like completely took a shit on that final scene, <laughs> but I'm actually not like diametrically opposed to this movie. I, I just like both of you grew up watching this movie. Um, maybe not as much as certain other like. Uh, I would say holiday staples or something like that. But if you know something about me, uh, besides movies that take place in one room <laughs> uh, locations for the duration of the movies, I also really do love holiday media, like whether it's Thanksgiving or 
Christmas time, like those specific holidays, winter holidays, so to speak. Uh, like even if they're bad, I find them watchable. Like I, I you know, I, I love consuming that. So of course, like I've always had things like this movie be in a constant rotation and whatnot. Now I haven't seen this one in uh, quite a while. Uh, somehow it kind of fell off uh, the bandwagon, so to speak, and that I haven't seen it like the same way I've seen a Christmas story every Christmas, even if I don't really like that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so rewatching it was an experience experience to say the least um <laughs> overall i enjoyed my time watching it i feel like i enjoyed it the bare minimum in the sense that i would absolutely rewatch this any thanksgiving you know um uh, but I also feel like if it wasn't Thanksgiving, I wouldn't have a desire to watch this. You know, like it's it's tied to that nostalgia factor of both the holiday that it you know uh, is attached to, and the feelings of warm tidings and joy and blah blah blah. Like that, I, I don't get enough out of this as a movie, but as a uh, as an experience of tying it back into like my childhood and to you know the holiday, whatever. It, it works on that level. As a film, I was less enthralled, and um, there are there are moments. Because here's the thing: I don't like John Hughes. Mm-hmm. Uh, his rise to power, so to speak, in the '80s baffles me. Like I don't understand. Uh, the, the The only uh, reason I can think of the, of how he became prominent is because he became prominent in the only decade in which he could become prominent, which was when we, yeah. Uh, There's something to be said to, of being in the right place at the right exactly. time. Exactly. Like, I think that's the only reason why he did rise to prominence, because he is not a good filmmaker. I don't know who, like, will praise The Breakfast Club or praise planes, trains, and automobiles or whatever, and then, like, obviously get into the, like, pacing or, like, editing or, you know, where you put the camera or that kind of, like, he does not make movies. He just tells stories okay so if that's what he does i also take issue with him as a storyteller because uh, i think alex knows this one of my most hated films is the breakfast club mm-hmm. uh there is something about his sentimentality that is so fucking saccharine that i just want to <laughs> choke him like he chokes me every time he tries to put that teens a teaspoon of sugar down my throat because I just can't really stand his cliched like bullshit when he tries to get into like with the breakfast club it's it's him saying that like we're all cliches but we're not um and whatever so I we're feel anything like, but yeah um and Ferris Bueller I feel like he's better at comedy than he is at drama and so that's why I feel like Ferris Bueller and Plain Trains uh, are the only two films of his I can I really yeah but they're watchable. still that same kind of John Hughes thing where even though they are comedies, there is still that dramatic undertone that always comes in. Oh, no, but it always, like, those two specifically, I feel like he saves it for the most part, like, toward the, until it all comes to a head at the end. I mean... But but there are always very, like, dramatic scenes. Like, we have that um, very surreal, almost, dramatic scene in... Uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off where there's like the montage where they're at the museum and you have Cameron facing the painting and kind of going in from his eyes to the to the painting it, it gets very oh, yeah. like bizarre and, oh yeah and... that's a great moment because John Hughes didn't let his actors spell out everything because... well that's true <laughs> and but but and I think that's something that he does really well and I think that comes through in the scenes that uh, it works for in, in this film too for me personally yeah. 
But um, yeah, when it's trying to be like overly dramatic, like uh, happens in, in the Breakfast Club, uh, yeah, sometimes it doesn't work great. Right, when like his character become a stand-in for something that's supposed to be like universal, because that's that's one of the things I always hear about like John Hughes movies is that like who can't relate to a John Hughes movie? Well, maybe me. Hi, how are you? Um, it's okay, man. Yeah, that's fine. But like, yeah. stop calling it universal if I if I. I'm a person telling you that it's not, so to speak. And it all uh, actually, I, I feel like there are things in uh, his films that may have been universal in like a small, like time stamp for a right, certain age group in the 1980s for people who were the age of 16 to 18 right. or eight to Boy, 10 if, or something. If you're a white teenager in the suburbs, this was <laughs> catnip. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, but uh, but looking at planes, trains, and automobiles, like here he took a very universal, I would say, like stand-up routine, which is like, what is the deal with, you know, holiday travel? I mean, like, that, you know, like that parts of it is universal, but then the emotional crux of the movie is weirdly specific. What like, is the deal with crazy uncles? Yes. <laughs> like Uncle Buck. Yeah. 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 Actually, that's, that's a good example where, yeah, yeah like where... Those movies. I are love not Uncle Buck, by the way. I have not seen it in quite a while, but I feel like I should rewatch it. I, it's just, <laughs> John I remember good, some good moments. Yeah. Um, but like here, that's the structure of the movie, but it's not the emotional underpinning of the movie because here we have uh, Dell's like very tragic backstory that doesn't really get explained. Which not saying that it needs to get explained, but what was like his whole? It seems like like was, for 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 me, uh, it seems pretty clear, and it's it's hard to. I guess it's hard to kind of grasp because uh, I do not remember the first time I saw this film, but it seems like this entire film was made for the shock value at the end. Right. That it's like the six seven twist, which it doesn't actually oh. hold up when you rewatch it because that's it true. Breaks but, its own rules. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I, it's hard for me to even think about it being because I don't remember the first right. time I saw this film. Because I, and I, I don't want to like nitpick the plot or anything like that because mm -hmm. that's just stupid or whatever but I, I just genuinely like I just want to make sure do I have am I under the impression right that the character of Del Griffith is basically a vagabond and like is just going from like place to place he, with, he's basically the from what I've gathered I know he's homeless yeah he's a less successful version of what uh of what George Clooney's character was in Up in the Air okay he never the, is home right. and he is he has changed his life he's self-sufficient he enough. is, okay. and he he makes money, and he's not homeless. Which we or literally like do that. see in uh, when he when they're at one of the stations, and we actually see him selling all the showering curtains as like as, earrings, as earrings. bracelets. He's pretty good but, at it. Yeah, but he has set his life up to where he never has to stay right. somewhere in the same time because he cannot physically okay. deal with it. That makes that. sense. So I just want to make sure. So following that train of thought, the minute he meets Steve Martin's character, he basically like wants to be friends with him and will basically like follow him. Cause that's what I'm trying to say as far as like what, what, what I, it, I don't want to like say the plot falls apart, but once you realize that he has no home, it's like, well then what were you doing this entire time? I, I don't know. There's just something weird about the idea. So was he just stalking him the whole time? Like, sure. anyway, I, uh, I, I guess it, well, it is a movie, which I think is just something you have to, you have to at least give it a little bit of, of yes, there will be consequences or, or, oh, it's a or movie. things that will happen that are, <laughs> yes, Nick, it's a movie. Would, would, it, would not happen in a, in a, but I, I, I think what we were saying though, 
Um, the only and, reason I'm bringing this up is because the film itself highlights the the that this revelation should have been under no, our noses the entire time. Because when Steve Martin is on the train and he's thinking back to the moments, he's somehow piecing together something that he should not reasonably be able to piece together. Because nowhere in that like montage does he ever really wants to make an actual like illusion, other than the most barest of yeah. like. Uh, illusion, like, like he says like something scenes. like I've never I haven't, I haven't been, been home, home in forever years. which is yeah. like okay but like that's something that like and he even says oh I just metaphorically you can never really be at home if you're out on the road or something and but like when he goes back like did like I just don't understand there how... had to be a reason for him to go back I think that is the ultimate answer of why he was able to have those revelations oh no no and I get that but that's why I'm saying the film itself is pointing out its own like that's the only reason why I'm asking these questions because if the film – and I agree that it had to have a reason to go back. So that's why that scene is in there. Mm-hmm. But like if, if you're going to give me a montage of like uh, the usual suspect style, like, oh, he was Kaiser Sose the whole time. Like <laughs> I'm also going to start thinking about how did we get to this point because you're asking the main character to do the same. So that, that the revelation doesn't really work for me because like I can't believe it. I was kind of shocked when I rewatched it that there wasn't a single line where he like – talked about Marie in the past tense, like even once, like that's something that does, would have completely gone past a character like uh, Neil Page because he was so self-absorbed or whatever. So that's why I'm just like, the ending is also weird for me because I have no idea how Steve Martin's character makes this, you know, leap in knowledge that he's like, what are you still doing here, buddy? It's like, oh, well, my wife died. I know. I figured it all out of a train. In that you killed your montage. wife, didn't you? Yeah. Didn't you, Dom? <laughs> so, and I just got hung up on something that I really don't even care about. So I'm sure. going to move on. And Good. I apologize for going on that tangent. That's but okay. it is something that the film called attention to. Sure. Uh but overall, I, I feel like John Hughes is good at one thing, okay? And that, that was kind of the point when I was originally talking about John Hughes. Uh, he is good at casting. I feel like even the movies I don't like, like The Breakfast Club, like he finds these perfect people to uh, inhabit exactly whatever like tone or like you know thing he's going for. For example, like we've already all said on this podcast, John Candy is, I would say, basically the one of the most perfect casting choices I've seen in any film ever because there is something about to be said about the tightrope that he, John Candy, is walking into somehow being, uh, yes, an obnoxious person without actually playing it broad. I mean, like, when he, I, I'm kind of in awe by his, I would say, comedic brilliance. When, like, when he's on the plane uh, and he's and he's seated next to uh, Neil Page, and I just, I love that there is nothing about him that's, like, he's not like a, uh, uh, I forgot who I was going to compare him to, but, for example, when he asks uh, Neil what he does for a living and he says marketing, and he goes, oh, super, super, like, it's not like he's shouting that line, but just the way he says that line oh. is, is like annoying. Like, and you just want to punch him in the face. Super. Yeah, like just you know. So it's like it's that really weirdly subtle uh, embodiment of like you're that person that yes, you get you get sat next to on the train, and as someone who works at a public library, uh, people come in regularly that I do not want to talk to, and and I love my job. So if anybody's listening, like it's not so much that whatever, but people <laughs> want to hold conversations with me because I'm at a desk that says "ask me," and for some reason that opens people up. Um, 
But like John, yes, John Candy is like that embodiment of you know this like the average Joe schlub that like is doing absolutely nothing wrong, and yet you can still understand why a person like Neil Page, even if he's a horrible person, would get annoyed by him. And of course, I feel like this all comes ahead in probably the best scene I've ever seen in a John Hughes movie, uh, which is actually more of a dramatic scene. But the the scene in which Neil Page, uh, and this is the kind of scene that most movies would save for the end, but it actually comes very early in their relationship, but when they're in the motel the first night, mm-hmm. and he, T. Martin, I think it starts off funny, because at first when he's like, there are a few lines like, um, you know, not everything is anecdotal, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, but when he goes, starts really going way too far. You have to discriminate. Like, that part is funny, but then, like, the next two or three lines, he just completely passed the point of no return of becoming an asshole. And it also taps into the feeling that literally, it doesn't matter if you're uh, Gal Griffith or if you're Neil Page, that is, I would think, maybe the one thing you never want to be called, which is boring. Like, the, the you know, you could be called stupid, you could be called whatever, but the one thing that I feel like that, like, or at least maybe it's just me, but that is so universal is the, is the feeling that you are somehow not interesting to another human being, because it if we're going to be, be honest about it, we're all self-absorbed creatures and we think somehow we are inherently interesting. So for somebody else to kind of like yeah. not just shatter that, but like brutally, uh, I would say, dismember that notion that I don't think he is quite, you know, uh, cognizant of. It, it's just one of the most devastating things I've ever seen, especially because it, it lets it play out in a realistic fashion. What I, what I also love about that scene too, in, in kind of going to that exactly what you're talking about, is that it starts out being funny and then it quickly turns to not being funny anymore, yeah. which I feel like is ultimately like what we've seen with, uh, especially in film, with bullies and especially starting with things where, yes, yeah, when they're saying things and they're saying hurtful things that, yeah, immediately, oh, yeah, it's kind of funny and he's making fun of him and, and whatever. But then you're like, that's not actually that funny. Actually, it's just horrible and, right it's, it's, and, that, and it's interesting that it, it even the film plays it as and we're just watching a movie so it like him being a bully towards him it, at least if it's just for laughs and chuckles is okay if it's like a little bit but then when it goes too far it gets really awkward and then we have yeah some of the better lines of the film which especially include john candy saying i, I like me yeah yeah exactly and I that's like, i like me and that performance right there is also another testament to i think why he was perfectly casted because he he's not once again he's not a different person when he shows that vulnerable side if anything he's all vulnerability like he just lays out exactly who he is at every turn and that's of course what neil hates about him because he's a very repressed person who won't like just kind of fucking go with the flow so to speak and they you know they comment on that uh but yeah then he's also able to nail that scene where he has to kind of solemnly like not buckle under you know such a brutal takedown of his uh, personality so i the it's it's moments like that that completely save this movie for me, and that's mm-hmm. why I, I ultimately like it more than I do. But then it's moments like them in like the, the the back of the truck and it's freezing, and then they cut to him being frozen, cut to the other guy being frozen, and then oh, cut to the dog, and the dog is frozen. Like there's too many moments like that that completely just throw away a lot of the goodwill that I built up. 
like I, I'm very into it for the banter between the two characters, but there is also a lot of physical comedy in here that is awkward and stilted, uh, that just does not not only just does not work for me, but also threatens to derail the whole my my personal enjoyment of this movie. But luckily, I would say that the the strength of the casting alone is uh, Steve Martin as a straight man, which is uh, what you know is kind of funny that he was also casted as that too, because he kind of was became uh, you know prominent doing like his wild and crazy guy routine like if anything like there's there's probably a bizarro universe where steve martin was casted in the dell griffith role uh but thankfully john hughes has the eye to see that that's actually his you know his wild and crazy stick could actually be useful in coming out in like the the car rental scene where Mm -hmm. he he gets to go unhinged and so to speak so that's where i think like the casting of this movie pretty much saves it even when it's so bad and cheesy. well and, and we get we get to other scenes as i've mentioned a couple times about the, the the very homophobic scene where they're sleeping in the bed together which again in in its time when this film was released uh people i'm sure didn't even like well did, some where it's just we, we we were not having the cultural conversation but, but that's why I, I guess more yeah. more where i'm going to what i was saying right. is that in terms of a culture People were very much accepting of that, of saying, "Oh, that's funny because they're not gay." Right, and I think the, the problem with that <sighs> no scene way. is that, like, it, it, uh, it. At first, it is funny, personally, like because at first it's these two people who hate each other are being intimate. Like, if, like I personally don't think it starts off as a homophobic, yeah. whatever. Uh, the problem is then it starts to layer more and more. Like physical contact is the crux of why this is funny because mm-hmm. it, he kisses him on the neck and he like likes it, and then you know, so like okay, now you're laughing because like because they're both dreaming and they're not quite aware. Where that scene loses me is that they both wake up and then we still have this, like, 20-second stretched out, like, comedy piece of, like, where are your hands? Oh, they're between the pillows. Those aren't pillows! Uh, Which... is not anatomically uh, accurate because if you had a hand up your ass, you would know. So I don't quite understand how that scene uh, even makes made sense in the writer's room. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but then they, they get up and then they're like, oh, you got some airs game because there's nothing funnier than two heterosexual guys being emasculated by the thought of rubbing, you know bodies up against each other is there it's just it takes things a little too far and i feel like that's where a lot of the comedy does lose me in the sense that like when i talked about the cutting scene in the in the back of the truck like it's one thing to cut once to uh you know somebody being frozen it's another thing to do it two fucking times and one with a dog as well or, or how about if we, if we just want to talk about physical comedy uh you talk about taking one step too far i think when uh, they're driving on the wrong side of the road, yeah. <laughs> and they and they are stuck between the two trucks, and there's the sparks flying. I think when they show John Candy in the the devil costume, it's hilarious, actually, for me personally. However, I will say when they like quick cut to the two, and they're supposed to be the skeletons that are there, and you see that what? Yeah, that that's really bizarre. Uh... <laughs> And even set pieces I like, like the you're driving on the wrong side of the road. I feel like also go on too long. Like yeah. it's not so much that it di- di- dilutes the jokes because I still laugh at yeah, like at them going how how would he know which way we're going? You know, like whatever. But it's also like they they say that like five times. Like mm-hmm. so that's what I mean as far as like I I enjoy the banter. I just don't enjoy like the faith that the script has in its audience to just accept the joke and move on to the next joke. Like we you know so that's part of gets a little grating uh but overall i mean i i, I do enjoy it I, and it yeah, comes down sure. to like i just want to see these two people mostly just interact for as long as they can 
So do you uh, do you guys want to want to head into ratings? We sure. kind of went back and forth and talk, talked yeah, a, a yeah. bit about it, even fine. though we've we've had our own segments, but we've kind of gone back and forth. In between I think that them, makes sense. So. Yeah. Susan, why don't you uh, why don't you start us off on our planes, trains, and automobiles ratings? This entire conversation has given me a lot of food for thought, especially you, <laughs> Nick. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm. I I don't I don't know how to, how to grade this anymore. I mean, I was going to come in here with a really strong rating, and now I'm just kind of like up in the air. I mean, well, but I I, th- I think that's an important thing about about this film is that at the end of the day, even though there are things that we can we can dislike about it, or there are things that have not aged well, or there are things that can make you think about what the fuck were they thinking, like ultimately it's still like what you felt about the film before yeah. we came in and all you can change your, your rating on what we talked right. about. Cause it's yeah. certainly valid to and I actually think we all agree that it, but... it did hold up. Yeah. Like sure. in, in the general sense, like none Not of us were, held up. None of us were like disappointed by revisiting it, which yeah. is kind of a pretty great feat uh, across the board of us three. Cause considering we always have usually distinct opinions. So yeah. that's a, that's a good thing for a movie of this age. I say I would give this film <laughs> I know this isn't that surprising. Shut the fuck up. I'm going to give this film a three out of five. Oh, no, that's not your oh, usual rating. I was going to say, I thought it was going to be three and a half. No. Okay, oh, cool. Wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that uh, even though uh, I, I've, I have different feelings about this now than when I was uh, 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> you should. I, and I should. You are correct. Uh, I still very much... 10-year-old me would uh, pause the scene of the cabbie and be like, oh, look... Uh, making women on the ceiling. Oh yes, those are my thoughts at ten years old. Um, w- when I'm watching this now, though, I-, I still do enjoy this, even if it's for different reasons. But I still do enjoy it for for reasons of when I I was younger and I was a kid and watching this that I that I I, I liked this film uh, when I was younger and I-, I liked watching it with my brothers and and with my my parents and, and with friends or whatever. But I, I enjoyed watching it because it, it is funny to reminisce about the these scenes and it is funny to to watch uh, something that was was thought of as a a great idea in the 1980s for a film of of let's put this music here and let's have them race for these cabs and let's have it be realistic that he can make a six o'clock flight at 4:45 in the afternoon um, these kind of things that are just not not real things anymore. Um, and I, and I, I, I enjoy that part of it. And at the same time, I, I enjoy a lot of the comedy slash uh, dramatic parts of this film. And I think they are uh, married well together uh, at certain points. So, yeah, I, I will still give it a three and a half out of five. And I, I would watch this uh, any day of the week, especially around Thanksgiving, uh, because it's just uh, this just this does it for me. And, and I, I want to say, too, that even though um, that the kind of montage at the end when uh, Neil is on the the L train, like supposedly going back to his house, and he he's left Dell behind, and he's finally going to be making it home. I don't know. There's just something about the montage of him like seeing things that are happening on Thanksgiving, whether it be uh, a pie being finished, or, or like the camera looking at one of his his kids smiling, or or lighting a candle, or something like that. I found the image of his kids smiling really creepy oh, because like we, we we don't know that character whatsoever. And like, there's something about it that like just looks weirdly Stepford when he thinks of it. I I, I liked it, so that, that's just for me. I, I don't no, know. Yeah, it, it also does get, get kind of weird when you realize that that kid is the uh, the same uh, kid from uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. That's a little weird. That's 
just right. <laughs> I, that actually did. They did. Yeah. Sure. He looks exactly the same. Like like an older he hasn't, hasn't. He hasn't aged. Well, all. from those two movies, I mean, like he like yeah, like yeah. They, they, yeah, I did not make that connection. It's right there for you. Wow. Thank you. I just liked it, and uh, I, I like this as a Thanksgiving film, and just in general, and it's a three and a half out of five for me. Well, it's a. Uh, I'll just say it's a three-star movie for me. It's like, you know, that's what I mean when I say earlier, like, it's the bare minimum of, like, I enjoy it more than I don't. And just kind of sum up everything I've already said, it's like, whatever issues I have with this film, whether it's, like, I, I think the comedy gets too elongated for my taste, or I think they completely fucking botch the ending <laughs> um, and, like, shoot themselves in the foot with what they're trying to accomplish, I still laugh at the jokes, and I still feel at the drama, because at the end of the day, uh, it all comes back to casting. I know that's a weird thing for me to fixate on, but that, that was this film saving grace for me uh, in rewatching it, and that, that like, these, these performances and these roles completely... Uh, do this material more justice than it might deserve, and that's ultimately what make, made it held up for me, so to speak. So that's that's why I basically I can pick it apart, and I I do think these problems are present, and I'm, I don't think I'm just crazy for uh, diving into them when the film literally calls them out themselves. Uh, but at the end of the day, the reason why I, I completely acknowledge why it's become like a timeless classic, and I think it has to do with John Candy and Steve Martin and. Uh, and, and, you know, these are kind of comedies also that we were talking about earlier, like when we very first started talking about this movie, they, they don't, it's a cliched expression, but they don't make them like this anymore. Like, no. and, and, and I, this is a film that I, you know, I, I, I'm glad to see that we can still pass, you know, down from generation to generation. And, uh, so yeah, it, it totally, totally held up for me as far as holiday viewing going, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't, you know, it's not going to be like April and I'm going to be like, oh man, it's on Netflix. I've got to fucking watch that. That, you know, but like I can just tell already that like a year from now, like you know, it'll be getting close to Thanksgiving, and I'm like, you know what, I, I could I could go for it again, and you know, it's, it's like Thanksgiving dinner itself. Like, yeah, you might have to talk to that really annoying uncle, but at least you get good food. So, yeah. so yeah, and, and it, you, it's good one time of year, and that's enough. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Cool. Well, that was a, a fun discussion about uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, and perhaps super, super. Perhaps super. someday we'll come back to uh, John Hughes. Maybe not the Breakfast Club, though. We'll see. Oh, we can come back to it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> On uh, episode forty-one, which is coming up next week, uh, moving back into the uh, theater and with another new release, and uh, it's funny because we spend a lot of this episode talking about franchises. <laughs> And uh, finally, we're going to close out a franchise, at least for now. As <laughs> no, we... they have you heard? Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Um, but but in terms of this, yes. this story, hopefully, yes. this will be the end, at least for a while. Are you serious? There was a well. First of all, Alex, what are we reviewing of it all? We will uh, we will be reviewing on episode forty one the uh, fourth Hunger Games film, which is a Mockingjay Part Two, which is the finale. Correct. To the Katniss yes. Everdeen no, yeah. Hunger Games story. It's closing out this franchise, but there have been reports of basically how they want to move forward with this property as if that was... As if anyone's surprised. Well, yeah, like as if that wasn't like... like it's funny because like, I felt like when I read that news article, which I feel like came out a few weeks ago or something like that, like it's just so funny like how it was written as if like everybody already knew this was happening, even though it makes absolutely no sense. So no. That that is the sad state of affairs. Well, I mean, look at uh, look at the uh, the Harry Potter 
continuation. Like, At least that was a few years after. Yeah. I'm just saying as far as like when did the last one come out and that was... 2011? Was it really 2011? Mm-hmm. Wow, I keep thinking it was like... Just yesterday. No, I keep thinking it was like a... Wow, that's weird. Anyway... <sighs> it just seems longer than that for some reason. Anyway, okay. but at least it's like a five year. I mean, this is a news article coming out before the final film. The final film is coming out. Like that's the that's the state we're living in currently. Yeah, uh, so. it's concerning. Yeah, but uh, for for the most part, uh, and we'll get into this more on next week's episode. But uh, these films, uh, if you want to compare them to other franchises. Have held up pretty well. Yeah, at least they're not terms... as good as like the Twilight Saga, but they're 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 up there. <laughs> you son of a bitch! <laughs> oh man! But they've been well. They've done well at the box office, and they've for the most part been well received uh, by uh, the general population and by critics as well too. For the yeah. most part, uh, and that's just kind of a a broad stroke, but. Um, some films have been thought of better than others, and we'll get into that uh, next week. And especially, we'll get into Mockingjay Part Two. Also, we'll have uh, a guest rejoining us as Aaron Silk will be uh, back with us next week. That's Yay! great. She uh, joined us for our Chinatown episode uh, uh, a while ago, and she'll be back as uh, we'll be discussing. Do you know if she's is she a fan of the? Honestly, I oh, don't, don't know. know. Yeah. I yeah, I, I remember I uh, she asked if she could be on another episode, and I. Uh, gave her a list of episodes we were going to be doing in the month of November, and uh, she uh, immediately sent a response saying she wanted to be on the Hunger Games well, episode. I, I, so, I, would, I would assume that that means she's got something to say. I would hope so. Yeah. And if not, then we'll remember never to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's what we can look forward to next week. And uh, if you have any thoughts on the Hunger Games series, you can always uh, pass them along to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. Uh, also, you can find us on our website, filmtankshow.com, where you can find all of our episodes, and you can also find uh, our most recent episodes on iTunes and Stitcher as well. And you can always find us sometimes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. So from Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank. We will catch up with you next time. Oh, <laughs>